Hello, and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and uh, look, Valerie, the the thing is that uh, we've we've really only got one cocktail left between the two of us. This is probably going to be a pretty long episode, so I just wanted to let you know right now that I'm probably going to have to send you to uh, to go fight another Star Trek podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. I feel like I would lose, but maybe <laughs> that means I would win. Yeah, I, I don't really care. I just want to drink the cocktail while you're gone. Well, that's fair. And I'm Valerie Hoagland, and I have to say I have a bone to pick with um, the graphic designers <laughs> who who designed the Dominion logo. <laughs> it's 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 not it's not good, and I and I don't understand it. It's not the best, but you know Star Trek. I think by and large wins with with logo design. You know, says the guy who has logo designs from Star Trek tattooed on him. Yeah, it's interesting to look at because, you know, if you pull up Memory Alpha um, on on the Dominion and the Dominion Wars, you get to see the, all the little logos for the Breen and the Dominion and the Cardassian logo, which I had actually never seen before. Um, are you familiar with it? Yeah, the Cardassian one is really cool. And and when I was getting my 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 tattoos, my logo tattoos, which are the uh, Klingon logo, the Klingon is in, insignia, and then also the uh, the Terran Empire insignia uh, on the same arm near each other, I was working on putting together kind of a half sleeve of a variety of these. The the Cardassian was one that I really wanted to do that I, I had sort of a spot picked out on the arm where I was going to get that and, and never did. And I'm unlikely to to continue that project at this point. Well, let's uh, let's tell people what we're what we're up to. We've already derailed this episode into only talking <laughs> about cocktails and tattoos, but yeah, that's kind of our want, I suppose. But we are here actually to talk about the Deep Space Nine episode, Rocks and Shoals. This is the second episode from season six. It aired on October sixth of nineteen ninety seven, which uh, was actually the day that I began my uh, advanced training in the army. It was a Monday. Well, I do not remember what I was doing on October 6th, 1997, um, but it wasn't that. <laughs> uh, well, this episode was written like many by Ronald D. Moore and directed by Michael Vehar. And we are back a little bit early. We're interrupting our regular schedule with this one because it was commissioned by one of our really generous Patreon supporters. Uh, and in fact, this listener has commissioned three Deep Space Nine episodes from us. We've already done Treachery, Faith, and the Great River. We're going to be doing the Magnificent Ferengi coming up uh, a few weeks for people on Patreon, a few months for the, the regular show, of course. And I, I just want to say that this was an extremely, extremely generous commission. And I just want to offer our gratitude for that and say thank you. Yes, thank you very much. It's uh, it's always fun to jump into episodes that we know that you care about, and like it just, I never, I never don't want to do this. Um, so I'm always excited when you help make it possible. Thank you very much. And this bunch of commissions has been especially cool for us because we hadn't really done together a lot of, or I think maybe any late Deep Space Nine episodes. And wow, are these good? And it's so good. It's so fun. It's so interesting. And so, I don't know, just compelling to uh, be getting to do these episodes kind of all tightly in a, in a row like this. Oh, it's so, you know, I am, um, I recently finished my, my Next Generation rewatch and, you know, 
did a lot of soul searching about what rewatch was next. Um, because if listeners haven't already learned this, I would much rather return to a <laughs> beloved ni- 90s TV show than watch anything actually relevant um, or contemporary. <laughs> um, but I, my heart said to go back to Deep Space Nine, even though I had recently done a rewatch. So I'm in the middle of Deep Space Nine season one right now. And whoa, are these characters different in season six? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, pretty famously the the classic Trek show with sort of the most character growth, the biggest character arcs. And uh, yeah, it, it it really shows here. It really shows. And there's great stuff, really, really compelling stuff in in this episode. And I'm, I'm excited to get into it. And this is uh, this is the second episode of season six. And this first bunch of episodes of this season are part of an arc. Uh, multi-episode arc in which Cisco and uh, his other, you know, officers, the Starfleet officers, I should clarify, have had to abandon Deep Space Nine, which is now in control of the Cardassians again. But of course, the the Cardassians are now merely members of the Dominion. Uh, the Dominion might actually use the word subjects rather than than members, though that's the word the Cardassians keep insisting on using. And so this episode opens up with our Starfleet heroes on board a Jem'Hadar ship that they've captured. This is essentially just a real immediate follow-on to the previous episode where they've been using this ship to uh, sabotage the Dominion war effort behind enemy lines, which is very exciting stuff. But as this episode opens, main power on this ship is just totally busted. There's no quick way to fix it. And and this really matters because their, their cover has been blown and there are some other Jem'Hadar ships that are only a few minutes away. So our heroes, they're attacked. Jadzia Dax is wounded. She's knocked unconscious. Uh, the symbiont may even be very badly injured at this point. The uh, ship goes to try to hide in a, a dark matter nebula, which I'm, I'm not sure is actually a real thing, but, you know, it's cool. <laughs> Sounds cool anyway. But then the, the ship just falls to the surface of an unknown planet, a planet they didn't know existed previously. This episode is really going to be about what happens on this planet. It's about their attempts to to get home. But this opening, Valley, this was super exciting. The the pace of the dialogue here, the camera work, I thought gave this scene a, a real urgency that we actually I don't think often get in Star Trek. I also just really enjoyed watching these people work together as a team in this highly stressful situation. Yeah, I it's you know, earlier I think you called it good and fun. Um I would call it good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would call it fun um, because it's just so it's so heavy, right? Like which I which I love Deep Space Nine for doing. Um, I don't know. I guess maybe the word that often comes to mind for me in these later seasons of Deep Space Nine and here in the opening with what you're describing is like beautiful, heartbreaking, raw. I think those are the words that come to mind often for me for this. And they do a re- captivating, I guess, in in those three adjectives add up to captivating. Yeah, for sure. Uh, when I said fun, I was thinking specifically of when we get to do the Magnificent Ferengi in a few weeks, because, yeah, Faith, Treachery, and the Great River was also an extremely heavy, uh, awesome, but heavy episode. This is pretty heavy, too. We've got some big some big topics uh, ahead of us here. And maybe maybe actually let's get into the like the real heart of this episode. So when we, we come back from the, the title sequence, we're on the planet, but we're not with our main characters. And instead, we're with two Jem'Hadar soldiers. Uh, their conversation lets us know that they were on a ship that also crashed on this planet, though that happened two days previously. 
And in their crash, their Vorta commander was injured. Uh, also, so were the the top two ranking Jem'Hadar soldiers. And their communications are out, and they're they're stranded on this planet. And after this, then we we, we do switch to check in on our heroes who are uh, recovering from their own crash landing uh, out in the ocean. They have managed to get out of the ship and, and get to the the shore. Though getting the unconscious Dax there took some real ingenuity, some real effort. They've essentially made a floating gurney out of some empty crates, and this scene. You know, it's it's here really just to establish that they have survived the the heroin thing that we you know went to the commercials on, uh, but that they also don't have access to the ship anymore. We see that sink behind them, and so they are going to be stranded. But I really enjoyed a, a sort of personal touch, a bit of comedic touch at the end of this scene with O'Brien complaining <laughs> that he has torn his pants leg and then realizing that except for Dax, they've all been extremely lucky. And the, the laugh here that they all share as they put things in perspective was just really, really awesome. The way this scene breaks and even the way the teaser breaks, you know, what we're getting here at the opening of this episode is just doubling down on the idea that these people are comrades, they are friends, and they work together well as a team. And it's just beautiful to see. Yeah, Glenn, you really took the words right out of my mouth. Camaraderie was on the tip of my tongue. Um, and as we both already spoke about character growth and character development, all of those things are so evident in the teaser and the beginning of the episode here. Um I think first we do have to acknowledge uh, that maybe Deep Space Nine gave birth to the idea for Google Glass um, <laughs> because, and I had forgotten this, that a feature of Jem'Hadar attack ships, which uh, Cisco had captured one and that's the one they're flying and that they crash in this onto this planet in this nebula don't have like windows or like view screens or ways to see out. You have to wear this little headset that lets you see outside and Maybe that's an amazing design feature. To me, it comes off as like a very strange design flaw. Um, but I'm sure there is somebody in the Trek fandom that understands why it is done this way, or perhaps an engineer. Well, I'm pretty sure that that actually gets addressed in the the, the first time we see one of these ships, right? It, because and, and something that is actually going to become uh, a, a matter here in this episode is the way that the Dominion thinks about or, or cares for its soldiers, which is to say, does not because because they just grow them in a vat and they're totally expendable and they don't need to have comforts. Uh, and at Windows, it turns out, like in a spaceship, are kind of just there for comfort. You don't need them, uh, just like you don't need them on a submarine. And so the structure of the vessel, just like in a submarine, like you could build windows, but it, the structure wouldn't be as sound. It's much sounder if it's just all metal. So you make a spaceship like that too, because they don't need to look out. And also, yeah, I think the idea of just using the, using the gadget was, you know, it was cool. Yeah, great answer. That was really helpful, Glenn. Thank you. And we're going to talk about the Navy some more later. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I feel like the Navy is always uh, like, it, it should just be called Star Trek, you know, call it Space Navy, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is such a big feature of Trek in general. But, you know, Google Glass aside, and Google Glass didn't really work out. I wonder what happened to that. Um, too many Jem'Hadar. Too many Jem'Hadar. <laughs> Um, but, uh, the, there's this moment on the, I don't know what it is, bridge center area, command area of the Jem'Hadar attack ship where O'Brien is giving an order to Nog and he says to do the damn something. And Nog says, okay, I'll do the damn something. And then O'Brien's like, watch your language. Yeah. And I, I think in that scene, 
just the fact that Nog responds that way is such a sign of like his adulthood, right? That he has grown up, that he's not this kid that we have been getting to know. Um, and in season seven, we're going to get as, you know, a lot more beats on, on how serving in the Navy um, has, has made him grow up um, in pleasant and unpleasant ways. And, but then the way that O'Brien is like, you're not allowed to use that word. It has this parental dynamic. It has this military hierarchy dynamic, but that's also kind of warm and loving uh, way of talking to each other. I don't know. It just felt it felt like such a real moment um, and a testament to the bond between all of these characters. Right. I think we often talk about how Star Trek is like we go to Star Trek to hang out with like this family, right? This found family that each show has and the the way that you know deep space nine is family forged through like intense tragic hardship um much different than which i think voyager is supposed to maybe be that but it never is you know <laughs> like <laughs> it's just so lighthearted and yeah this scene too with with uh with o'brien being so concerned that he ripped his pants when they they just survived you know a crash landing i think really speaks to, you know, I don't have the experience of serving um, in the Navy or in the Army. Um, but I, you know, I'm I'm a therapist. I have experience like being seeped in hard stuff all day, all the time. And it really does create the need. I think you see this with doctors and nurses and stuff, too, to like use inappropriate or dark humor, right, um, to to get through these really hard moments. Absolutely. I mean, this my military experience, one of the things that I, I remember most vividly from it is all the laughing. Uh, it would be nice if I could forget the context for all the laughing, <laughs> you know, on command. Cannot, right? But but yeah, that's a huge part of it is the the joking, the the, the looking at something that is bleak, sometimes something that is horrifying uh, or being in a situation that is bleak or, or horrifying or both and uh, laughing in the face of it, uh, which I don't know, that might be a very Klingon thing to, to do, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's one of my big takeaways and is one of the, the reasons why you know, those people that I served with, even though I, I don't really keep in touch with them very much, you know, they're, they're brothers in, in, and always will be right. The, the, the bond of this. Um, and, and I think these scenes really capture this. They show us this without having to tell us this, which is actually something I'm going to say or point out a lot in this episode that I think is just, it's just expertly done. This is a really awesome episode. Yeah. I mean, I think this happens these bonds form among people who go through hard things together, right? Um, thinking of of the way my colleagues and I go through really hard things together um, with, you know, what our clients are are dealing with, and like, you know, another there's there's a shared trauma <laughs> that brings people together, and that necessitates joy and laughter as a response as well. And you know, we can see this in many many other examples that just aren't the ones that that we're talking about. Though I do think Klingons would like. I think Klingons would laugh at people <laughs> like people they might laugh like laugh at the people they're oppressing rather than with and like bemoan the situation um so I don't know if I'm ready to say I'm a Klingon um 
Though the costuming is cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the, the hair. I wish I just wish I had cool Klingon hair. That's all I that's all I really want. Well, let's uh, let's get the next scene here. There is a B plot in this episode, and that B plot is about what's happening on the station. That actually does begin here at this moment with a, a very short scene with only one spoken line, but I actually want to treat the B plot separately. So let's carry on with the story that's taking place here on this planet in this dark matter nebula. And we get Next, the the juxtaposition of two cave scenes here. Uh, One of them is for the Dominion characters, and the other one is for our Federation characters. In the Dominion cave, the the Vorta, uh, his name is Keevan. I don't actually think we know that at this point in the episode, but we're going to learn that, so we'll just call him Keevan. Uh, Keevan is pretty seriously injured, but he is determined to make it out of here, to get off this planet alive. But it is going to be at least 10 days before they can even attempt to make a radio call for help. So so the real issue here at this point is that there just isn't much Ketracel White left for the Jem'Hadar soldiers. We are going to get a great speech about what Ketracel White is and what it does later. But for now, what we really need to know is simply that it's a drug that the Jem'Hadar need in order to live, and the rationing of it is going to be a problem. Uh, we should pause here, I think, before we go check in on the Federation cave, because we have got to talk about how creepy <laughs> Kevin the Vorta is, because it's a huge part of his character. Yeah, you know, Glenn, I think it would be really cool when we um, cover our next Deep Space Nine commission, the Magnificent Ferengi, to talk a little bit more about the Vorta and their creepiness and how they're portrayed and what we're reading in that. I think, you know, that would be a really amazing discussion. But since there's so much heaviness um, and stuff we want to give way to in this episode, we'll maybe save it for later. But uh, yes, yeah, the Vorta are scary. (laughs) It's scary to think of someone having that much power over others that is just um, unquestioned. Absolutely unquestioned. Yeah, the Vorta are really like the vicars of their gods, right? The 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 founders, the the changelings, right? Who go by the founders here in the Dominion, who are worshipped as gods, revered as gods. And the Vorta are essentially their agents who are managing these soldiers who are you know, made in a lab they're being you know, born in test tubes essentially are just manufactured for this and there's something just about like the hands-offness of that and this great serious divide between the officer class as represented by the vorta and then the enlisted group as represented by the jemhadar that in some ways mirrors what real world modern militaries are like but dials it up to like I don't know, 27 or something like that. And maybe this doesn't actually even seem all that functional, though we might wonder how typical Keevan is. And and spoiler, Keevan, hey, he's going to make it off this planet and we're actually going to see him again. We're going to see him in The Magnificent Ferengi, which we are going to, uh, which which will sort of wrap up actually uh, this sort of trilogy of episodes here that really feature the Vorta, uh, including Faith, Treachery, and the Great River, which we've already done, which is actually just a really cool bunch of episodes to get as a commission to really give us a chance to, to pause, as you're suggesting, Valerie, next time and, and and take stock of the of the Vorta. They do also a great job, I think, of casting for the Vorta. Uh, right? Uh, they all sort of have distinct characteristics. Uh, they're definitely character actors who really who really lean into the the villainy, the sort of mustache twirling villainy of their roles, and it's really excellent. Uh, the actor here is Christopher Shea, and he's got some cool eyes. But it's it's just hard to look away from his eyes. But he also is doing a lot of great acting 
with his eyes where you can you can see that he's kind of detached from things that he's saying, right? That he's lying, essentially, like with every fiber of his being. I mean, he's kind of snake-like there. But uh, Christopher Shea has actually been in a lot of Star Trek, always as an alien. But he played a, several characters in Enterprise and, and one one alien character in, uh, in Voyager. But I didn't recognize him there, uh, which is cool. In my mind, all the Vorta are Jeffrey Combs, but also in my mind, everyone at this point is Jeffrey Combs. You never know where you're going to find Jeffrey Combs. <laughs> yeah, he was in my closet one day. It was uh, it was weird at first, but he's fun. Oh, man. Opening the closet and finding uh, Keevan's eyes oh, in no. there would be just like such Not- a... You're, you're, but you're right. There's this like um, disconnected quality um, that... that that the Vorta have um, almost as if they're like floating in our plane of existence, but not fully here. Um, And I think it's so apparent and the acting is so good in this episode, especially when we see kind of the harsh, the way that the harshness of the environment is affecting everybody else. (laughs) But somehow like, you know, the Vorta is not sweating or like distressed um, or anything like that. It's, it's, you know, just as if everything just rolls off of him. Yeah, he's a little too polished. Even as he, we we know he's actually dying from his injuries, but he's not really acting like he's in pain or or distress. Even though uh, he clearly is in some sense, at least in distress. I don't know about the, the the pain, though. He's also got a plan that we're gonna we're gonna find out about. But we should go check in on the the Starfleet cave at the, this point, which is essentially undergoing the same exact thing as what's happening over here in the Dominion cave. Right? Someone is injured, but here in this case, it's Dax. They're short on supplies. There's no way to call for help. Same as the Dominion cave. And this similarity really matters because this is going to be a story about soldiers on opposing sides actually having a lot in common with each other, which is very much like uh, the TOS episode, Balance of Terror. And so given those similarities, the contrast that we're going to get is really between Keevan and Cisco. It's between the leaders. Keevan is creepy. He also clearly does not like his soldiers. He's maybe actually a bit afraid of his soldiers, though he's not showing that clearly at this point yet. But compare that to Cisco. Cisco laughs with his soldiers. He cares for them. He knows them. We get this great bit here where Dax even is calling him by his first name, which you you know you would never do with a Vorta, right? And these two scenes juxtaposed like this, I think, brilliantly demonstrate without ever having to say anything that this is what they're for, right? That they're they're showing us this contrast or the contrast between Keevan and Cisco while also sharing us, while also showing us the similarities between the soldiers. And it's just phenomenal visual cinematic storytelling. The way this episode is set up and the way that it cuts um, between these, these two caves um, is really brilliant as you've pointed out and allows us it's, it's doing that um, showing and not telling thing so, so well to allow us to kind of make our own comparisons between what is happening um, with each, I don't know, regiment. Is that the right word? 
group it, of people. It is not. It is not. What do we call? What do we? What do we call this? <laughs> <laughs> well, so regiment is a is a fairly big unit. You would be talking about like a thousand or more troops there. So in terms of thinking about like the American military equivalent here, uh, we're looking at two platoons. Uh, that's platoons. not the that's not the appropriate rank. <laughs> like Cisco is like way <laughs> high of a rank for that. He actually would be running like a regiment or a battalion. But uh, but yeah, in terms of like how many people we're talking about here and the the like and the org chart uh, within this unit, it's basically a platoon. Okay, sure. I feel like <laughs> we'll just go with groups of people in caves. <laughs> yeah, that's fine <laughs> um, too. Or platoon. Um, but it, it's it's really fun, and I think it allows them to um, do this kind of like off planet, off starship, off Deep Space Nine kind of episode um, in a a really effective and new and fun way that doesn't feel tired, even though you know I am sometimes tired about all of the exterior shots and the down planet things that happen just outside Los Angeles <laughs> um, where so many of these things are filmed. And, you know, I was even thinking about that too, because in the beginning, the scene where um, we see the, the ship crashed in the water and then kind of like the coastline around it really reminded me of the beginning of, of Star Trek Discovery season three, one of the scenes that we see there, except that was filmed in Iceland because they have a budget. <laughs> Yeah, this this was actually filmed uh, nowhere near any uh, any body of water or nowhere near anyway a uh, the ocean. That was all actually CGI. They filmed this at a quarry that did have mm-hmm. water in it, but they CGI'd that. I I looked this up because I thought it looked really pretty, and I was like, I want to hike that. And then it's just a quarry, so I don't want to hike that. It turns out it was also apparently a hundred and twenty eight degrees Fahrenheit when they were filming this. Yeah, that's and that's going to matter to some of the creative choices later, uh, the, the the ending that they choose for this episode. So we will we will be talking about that. Yeah, it also apparently matters too. And I didn't know this that Terry Farrell has a skin condition that makes it hard for her to be um, exposed to sunlight, which is why she was injured in this episode. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that well that worked out as a brilliant choice because she's because it lets her be you know you know the stand-in for. Keevan, right? The idea that that both groups here have someone who's injured and seeing the way that that injured person is sort of the center of attention, uh, I think just works brilliantly. I didn't realize that this was just kind of a constraint that they they had. Well, well done. I mean, Star Trek is uh, pretty well known for for uh, taking constraints and, you know, making one of the best motion pictures of all time out of it. What, yeah, what movie are you talking about, Glenn? Wrath of, Wrath of God. Um, But, you know, one character that we haven't talked about yet that to me is like the star of this episode, don't agree with all of his choices, but what do I know about his lived experiences is Ramata Klan, who is the third. Um, That's how he's referred to. Um, He's the Jem'Hadar, the the lead Jem'Hadar, the one who is always talking to Kivan, the one that has um, command over the other Jem'Hadar men and soldiers. And he is a really cool character actor, too, that has been all over Trek. His name is Phil Morris. He was on Smallville as John Jones, which might be how you know him, Glenn. Uh, yes, I recognized his voice and, and, and then failed to look it up. I assumed that he must have played uh, a demon in like Angel or something, you know, which would have been largely contemporary or close to contemporary to this anyway. Uh, yes, the Martian Manhunter on Smallville. And Smallville is uh, actually in some ways the origin story of this whole podcast network is that was one of the early things that Brandon and I uh, bonded over. 
also very strange because such a different character. Um, Phil Morris also plays Jackie Childs um, on Seinfeld, who is Kramer's lawyer, who is supposed to be a parody of Johnny Cochran. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, wow. And and he's in the Seinfeld finale, that infamous finale, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's also, um, he's also a child in a TOS episode, Miri. Um, he's a cadet in Search for Spock. He's a Klingon in another episode of Deep Space Nine. And um, he's in Voyager, too. Wow, is he, sec- is he secretly just like the spirit of Star Trek? I'm not. Yeah, it's this is this. This is really, you know, those people that run through TOS through kind of the 80s and 90s era stuff always feel so special (laughs) to me. Yeah. Well, we got to get him on like some new Trek. He's got to show up on Discovery or, uh, you know, maybe uh, (laughs) Strange New Worlds or something for that. And and this is a great role. This is a great performance and I think a really compelling character. And he is going to start to take center stage in a little bit. And that's going to be fun to talk about. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to unknow that Jackie Childs and Ramata Klon are the same <laughs> actor. Yeah, right, because one is just a buffoon. I mean, right, the character on Seinfeld is a buffoon character, and this is an incredibly serious and, and heartbreaking character here. He's not going to survive the episode, and we're, we're well, I won't speak for everyone, but I'm going to cry about it. Let's take another step towards the uh, the part of the episode where I am, in fact, going to weep probably into the into the microphone. So we get a scene here where Nog and Garrick are walking on the beach. They're talking. They're having a nice time. Uh, it is until they're captured by the Jem'Hadar. Uh, when they're brought to Kievan, uh, the Vorta, uh, Garrick tries to pretend like he's a Dominion subject because he's Cardassian and he claims that he's a prisoner of the Federation. And now he's just so glad to have been rescued. Uh, this ruse does not work, but also Kevin just d- doesn't care. All he wants to know is whether or not they've got a doctor with them. And hey, they do. And that means he's not going to kill them. Kevin then orders the Jem'Hadar leader, the, the third here, Ramada Klan, to, to go scout the Federation camp and report back. And he has this great line where he says that the third obviously doesn't really understand his orders, but that is all right. The only thing that matters is that he carries them out precisely. He doesn't have to understand in order to do that. And this is an incredibly dismissive thing to say, right? He does not care at all about his subordinates. He doesn't even really seem to regard them as people. And, and we're going to get more of that as the, the story continues. But what I really want to know, Valerie, is are you ready for a Nog and Garrick buddy cop movie? Obviously, <laughs> obviously I am, but I will watch anything with Garrick in it. Though I will say, and and it's to serve the plot of the episode, I, I'm not like critiquing the choice, but it is interesting um, to watch Garrick, who, you know, is so good at lying and being a spy and tricking people, like be so obviously bad at it in this moment. Like his lie is really poorly constructed. It's not believable. He's not really even selling it, which I think is actually supposed to be a moment of levity for us in the episode. Um, Like this isn't the moment of seriousness or one of the moments of seriousness that we're supposed to focus on. And so we get a little comic relief with, uh, with Keevan finding Garrick's combat and, and Garrick just being like, I'm just kind of hoping you wouldn't bring that up. (laughs) Yes, this is a real point of contention that I had here. I mean, minor point of contention about this bit of the episode, which is that I I actually think there's a really good reason why you would give a prisoner a comm badge in this situation, which is that those comm badges are actually used to track people. You know, it doesn't mean you're on the team. (laughs) It it is. It's I think 
maybe what you're saying too is Garrick doesn't usually give up after right. the first line of right. being called out, right? He's got it's lies all the way down with Garrick. He's he's got more to say, but he doesn't say it here. Um, which is so unusual for the character, but also just gives us a moment to kind of like laugh. It's like, okay, the whole Garrick is a spy for these evil people thing. We like let's just laugh about it right now because we got other heavy stuff going on. Yeah. And I do think that part of what we're supposed to see here is that this is Garrick running through the playbook essentially and sort of realizing, yeah, you know what, even if these people actually do think that I'm a prisoner of the Federation and are going to not keep me prisoner here, I'm still going to be stuck in this cave with all these people and we're stuck on a planet in a dark matter nebula. So like, really, what am I trying to accomplish? Yeah, you you could tell even Garrett gave up. Yeah, yeah. It's like this one, I just I just might have to see how the writers are going to resolve this one for me. <laughs> I think Garrett also knows though that that something opening up to the exchange of of the Doctor one will get him out of this position of prisoner, which will serve him, which is usually the thing he cares about himself and Cardassia. Those seem to be the things he cares about. And two, will open up more possibilities for negotiation or being saved, right? I think in a way, like he's he's playing the bad spy here to open up more possibility. Yeah, I mean, Garrick does always have like you know, many cards up his uh, up his sleeve here. His well tailored sleeve, yeah. and I do love, I do love that the simple tailor gets to pick up the beat of uh, O'Brien's ripped pants later and, and be upset that it, it you know didn't rip along the seam or something like that. That was a great little moment too. It's funny when Garrick is our levity, but that's that's what we have this episode. And this is uh, this is why soldiers actually uh, take sewing sewing kits with them. Yeah, actually, that's that's the problem is that Garrick lost his sewing kit in the crash. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, we have two red shirts in this episode, and one of them finally notices that Nog and Garrick are are missing. And so uh, our heroes go out looking for them. And of course, they run right into the Jem'Hadar who have come to scout their camp. And there's a real tense moment when the Jem'Hadar commander, the third, has ordered his troops just to wait and observe, even as they realize that the Federation people know that they're there. They're you know trying to hide behind some rocks here. But what makes this tense is that the Jem'Hadar are getting anxious and, and really trigger happy because they are suffering withdrawal from Ketracel White. And so one of them just can't contain himself anymore. And he just opens up fire. And there's a bit of an action sequence at this point. But what matters is that the Jem'Hadar choose to withdraw. And we learn that they can't use their personal cloaking camouflage anymore. And again, this is because they don't have the Ketracel White, that, that their ability to do that is dependent on having the Ketracel White. And then we're back in the Dominion Cave, where Kievan is really upset that his orders were disobeyed. He wants to know which specific soldier opened fire, but the third will not tell him. And he explains that the, the matter's been dealt with and that that is how this works, right? He tells the Vorta that that's how this works. The officer, the Vorta, can discipline the senior NCO, but only the senior NCO can discipline the troops. And he says, it's the order of things. And this is a phrase that he is going to use a few more times before this episode is over. And I really like here that one of the elements, one of the character traits about Kievan that makes him so sinister is that he's a micromanager. 
Ugh, I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, this might be a good moment too, though. You know, apologies to listeners uh, unfamiliar with Deep Space Nine and the Dominion War that we didn't do this for you earlier in the episode, but it might be nice to to take a beat here and explain a little bit what the order of things is um, and what's going on with the Dominion and how it is structured. So without going into the entire Dominion War concept, it's just worth saying that the Dominion is um, an empire that exists in the Gamma Quadrant. It's been around for, depending on the episode that uh, you have just referenced, two or 10,000 years, a long time. Um, And they want complete dominance and control over the universe. So the wormhole gives them this opportunity to do this in the Alpha Quadrant. Um, And it's all just a reaction to the fact that two or 10,000 years ago, the changelings, which Odo is one, were persecuted by solids. It's kind of a, a revenge and control narrative in response to a very, very old trauma. So the changelings, um, which are shapeshifters, they're the head of the whole thing. They're, they are, they have all the power um, and they created through these feats of genetic engineering um, two species to do their bidding. The Vorta, who kind of run everything, they're the administrators, and the Jem'Hadar, who are the soldiers on the ground fighting and conquering and doing all this stuff. And the fact that the changelings are at the top, the Vorta are next, and the Jem'Hadar are under that is the order of things. And that is fierce loyalty to the order of things is how the whole thing is propped up. It's, it's built into the entire system. So when Ramataklan says this, he's he's not just referring to like the micro ranks and micro hierarchies happening in this moment. This is the entire structure and philosophy of the Dominion. That was a really awesome brief on you know the org chart, but also the whole like ruling philosophy of this this crazy space empire. And that it you know there are uh, trillions of people we've left out of this chart because they're just the subjects. They're the conquered populations, and we do see actually several different species that the Dominion controls. We see them early in Deep Space Nine. That's actually part of the the exploration storyline in the early seasons of Deep Space Nine is that people are going back and forth through the wormhole and meeting different species and new civilizations. And some of them are under the control of the Dominion and some of them are not, but are worried that they might be. But once we get into the war, we really only see the Jem'Hadar, the Vorta, and then the the founders themselves. It's really only the sort of top level uh, management of the empire. And it really emphasizes that the fact that the Dominion exists simply to impose order on all these other species, all these other civilizations, that, that all they want to do, their whole goal is simply to keep them in their place, like literally in their place, so that they cannot possibly pose any type of threat to the changelings, that it really is about order and control. That is their that is their whole interest. That's the whole reason even for the war that is happening now is that because there's this wormhole, their section of the galaxy is open to the Alpha Quadrant, and they cannot stand that. And so they're going to conquer the Alpha Quadrant as well. And it really creates this almost faceless. And I think it really matters also that the changelings themselves don't have permanent form the way that, you know, 
we do, the way that solids do. And it's so they really become this sort of just faceless, almost bureaucracy that just wants to control everything. Right. And there are all these other mechanisms of control. So that's where the Ketracel White um, comes in here in this episode is that, um, you know, the changelings in the Vorta have made the Jem'Hadar de- drug dependent, um, uh, dependent on this drug, Ketracel White, which helps them to be controlled. And you can see this in this episode. Keevan is controlling the supply, rationing the supply of the Ketracel White. And it's actually, you know, I think we're meant to believe it's the only thing keeping the Jim Hadar in line, but I actually think Ramata Klan would do that anyway. He's because he's just, you know, it's unwavering, it's unquestioned. Um, there are so many opportunities for Ramata Klan to like not listen to Keevan and and he chooses the order of things over and over every time. Um, no matter what, which is, you know, something we will see as we keep going. But I also think it at some point it would be fascinating and and rich to talk about how the Dominion is different than like the Borg, right? The Borg are seeking perfection, right? Conquering to get better and be more perfect. Um, and the Dominion are seeking control. There's even, there's, it, it's said very explicitly, I think in a season three episode, the female changeling who we kind of get the vibe is the head of the whole thing, you know, is asked by Odo, why control anyone? And she just straight up says, because what you can control can't hurt you, which I think is really just an exercise in understanding how oppression oppresses us all. <laughs> um, uh, but it's very different than other kind of villains um, that we see in Trek and be cool to explore that further. Yeah, we we should really do some kind of special episode at some point. I, I've kind of vaguely wanted to do this for a, a long time. And you, you've actually put words to this impulse that I've had. But we, we should someday do a sort of special episode comparing the various empires or maybe states generally, we could include the Federation in this, just doing a little compare and contrast along maybe some like sociological, political science lines or something like that of going through what these civilizations, what these states are. I think that would be a lot of fun to do. But uh, it is actually a little early in this episode for me to start spinning off new episode ideas. That's normally something I do towards the the end. But you have uh, you've reeled me in here, Valerie. But let's uh, let's carry on with uh, our next scene because Keevan has a special assignment now for the the third. Uh, Keevan sends the third to go talk to Cisco to to offer him a trade. Uh, he wants Bashir and Cisco to come to the Dominion camp, and in exchange, Nog and Garrick will get to go free. And this scene is really about Cisco and the third talking. It's about them recognizing each other as equals, but it's also about them recognizing that this is a pretty stupid and impossible situation. Everyone just wants to get off this planet. And Cisco is not willing to make this trade because he just doesn't trust Keevan or really like Vorta in general. And that is probably good policy. But the, the third insists, he insists that nothing duplicitous is going to happen here because he won't allow it. And so... Bashir and Sisko will absolutely, definitely be allowed to go free again after they meet with Kievan, who really just wants to propose a plan to them. Sisko here in this scene is very clearly trying to turn the third against Kievan. He's trying to get him to see that Vorta just don't care about the Jem'Hadar. They don't have their interests in mind, right? Because here in the Dominion, soldiers are expendable. The Jem'Hadar die. That is what they are for. And there are a number of tactics that Cisco is using here, but one of them is that he actually uses the third's personal name. He calls him Ramada Klan, and he treats him 
like he's a person, like he's an individual. And this is such a sharp contrast to how Kievan has treated the third, which is to only refer to him as his rank. Uh, and in fact, to even withhold a promotion from him and to use that as kind of a, a carrot to get him to not question his orders, even as they are not, as you inferred or as you implied earlier, Valerie, not making a whole lot of sense. Mataklan is such a cool character and so different than the Vorta because he doesn't lie. <laughs> He's very concrete and honest with everything that he says. There doesn't need to be um, finagling or negotiating or manipulating, which are, you know, the the tactics of the Vorta that we see Kievan employing here. Um, and, you know, we can think about Garrick, too, when we think about that. Um, but the third just says the truth all the time um, and won't budge on it. Um, this is how it is. This is what's going to happen, period, end of sentence. Um, there's no mystery about it, which is interesting because you see Cisco trying to act, interact with the third as if something is negotiable here, which is how you would interact with a Vorta, but not a Jem'Hadar. Right. The whole idea here is that the the soldiers, the Jem'Hadar, are honorable people, that they're they're good, they're honest, they're just doing their job. It's the Vorta who are duplicitous and and really the villains as as you know, as far as this story is concerned, right? The Vorta is the the villain. And everyone else here is really just a, a victim of of circumstance, but also a victim of the Vorta's duplicity duplicity. And we're gonna see the consequences of that really ratcheted up at the end here. It's also, I think, another instance in this episode of Trek asking us to look at this theme of control and look at this theme of the way that the Federation and Starfleet so often think that they know better um, and that they can impose the better that they know on others. Um, we get this a lot in TOS, but it's just all over Trek, right? And and we see that playing out here in a different and I think a little bit more honest way with Cisco being like, but can't you see that that you're being oppressed? Can't you see this person doesn't care about you? Can't you see this is a trap? Um, and the response from the Jem Hadar, or at least from the third, because we never get to hear from any of the other Jem Hadar, um, is, uh huh. So what? That's not the point. That's not where my values lie. That's not what's important to me. And you know, we obviously relate more to the Federation and Starfleet than we relate, I think, to the Jem'Hadar when we watch this. And and we're forced to confront that, that, that we don't necessarily know better or we or at the very least we can't impose what we think is better on, on others. Right. We, like Cisco, I think have this real fantasy that all you have to do is show people that they're being oppressed and then they'll get really mad about it and throw off their oppressors. That is not actually how it works really under in, in any situation, I don't think, but especially not in this one. I, I think the, the third actually has a really good, really kind of unstated, but really good point here, which is, but what else would I go do? What what is what are the other options open to 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 me? I mean, you know, even said as aside the fact that none of us can get off this planet at least right now. But even if we could, what is what is open to us? And part of that, of course, is about the Ketra cell white. Though there is there are some there's a really great episode in Deep Space Nine that shows us Jemadar without the the Ketra cell white. But that is a big part of what this drug is for is to 
limit the Jemadar's options of ever resisting. It's not even just about like controlling them in a particular moment, making them addicted so that they'll want it, but it's about making it impossible for them to just just quit. Yeah, I mean, it's the line between thinking that you know what is right and maybe being kind of correct about what is right and also having to confront somebody else's autonomy, right? And knowing when when to stop, uh, when when to accept somebody else's autonomy or lived experience or, or perspective and how to sit sometimes with the discomfort or the uncertainty or the confusion um, or the heartbreak of that. Um, depending on the situation. And I hadn't really thought about it in, until just now listening to you. But this is the connection. I think Ramata Klan is the connection between the A plot and the B plot. I know that we'll get there in a minute, but Kira is a very interesting contrast to Ramata Klan. <laughs> Yeah, I had not thought about that, and and now I may be regretting having broken <laughs> broken our episode up in in kind of in in, ha- in half in parts there. But uh, yeah, let's take that up when we get to the B plot. But uh, and and we can expedite that by moving into the the next scene here because Cisco, look, he's going to agree to this prisoner exchange. We actually get a really fun scene where that happens. Uh, Garrick gets to Garrick pretty hard <laughs> in this in this scene. But then Bashir and Cisco they're at the Dominion Cave, and Bashir realizes that Kevin needs immediate surgery, uh, the Jem'Hadar are really interested in seeing what the inside of Avorda looks like. I am not. I'm squeamish, but I'm glad they're getting some entertainment. And uh, Bashir operates. It's successful. So now it's time to talk. Kivan orders the Jem'Hadar out of the cave, and then he has an evil plan for them. There are two problems that everyone is facing on this planet right now. One, there is no functional communicator. And two, there's only one vial of Ketracel White left, and when that runs out, the Jem'Hadar are going to become vicious animals. They will kill everyone, and then eventually they'll turn on themselves as well. But even before any of that happens, Kievan will lose his hold on them. It's, it's only because of the Ketracel White that he you know, has such great authority over them. And so Kievan proposes that... They kill the Jem'Hadar first before this can happen, and he's going to do this by sending them to attack the Federation camp, but he's going to give Sisko their precise plans so that they can you know, more or less be ambushed. And then after this, after the Jem'Hadar are all killed, Kievan will surrender to Sisko as their prisoner of war, and they can take the damaged communicator that he has, and O'Brien can repair it and get them all off this planet. And so really just to summarize what's happening here, right? Kievan is going to send his soldiers to their deaths so that he himself can live. He's also going to offer himself to the enemy as a prisoner of war with valuable intelligence so that he himself can live. Uh, so really, right, what's going on here is that Kievan does not seem to have a whole lot of principles. Oh, no. Principle, the principle of survival of self, <laughs> maybe. Um, but that's about it. And there's so much, like, I also, I question, I, I question what would actually happen to the, the Jim Hadar. You know, I think it's important to maybe question the narrative that Avorta is presenting us of like, do this thing that's in my interest. Cause if not, the, the, these, these people will become vicious and animalistic. And I, I question whether or not that's actually true, but that's a really helpful narrative to spin to 
protect your own interests and not care about other people at all. Yeah, I wondered about this uh, at the time, though. I, I don't think that he is lying about that. I mean, he might be wrong about that, but I do think he actually believes that. But there was a part of me that did wonder if this was not itself a lie and that what he is really actually wanting is just to become a POW of the, the Federation for some other reason. Like he just wants to he actually himself wants to escape from the Dominion or something like that. We know that's not really possible, uh, maybe in part informed by the fact that we just had the Vorta defection or the defecting Vorta episode. We just did it, right? Uh, so we know that that's maybe not really possible. But in fact, even you know, having done these episodes out of order might be a little unfair because I don't know that they would have invented this idea. In fact, I think we can clearly say they had not invented this idea yet, they being the writers. But, you know, we know that Keevan has like a suicide implant that he's supposed to use in this situation and is choosing not to use it. There's even a line here. Um, I forget who delivers it. Uh, someone um, in the in the Federation cave says something like, oh, well, this works out really great for you. You just get to live you know, comfortably as a prisoner of war. I think it might be Bashir that delivers this line. It, it is. And it's obviously quite snide, right? Because he is going to get to live comfortably as a Federation prisoner of war, presumably, if we're still operating under the assumption that the Federation actually abides by its own principles, which is always uh, a little bit unclear <laughs> in Deep Space Nine, uh, that he's not going to be tormented or tortured or you know roughly interrogated, uh, that he's going to live pretty comfortably with 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 all of his, his rights as a person uh, respected. And that was part of what I had in mind when I was wondering if he was trying to surrender on purpose so that he could just live out the war pretty comfortably. And then if the Dominion wins and he's rescued, just say, yeah, they took me prisoner. Yeah, I think I think that's it. I think that that is true. <laughs> All right. Well, we cut from this and we're, we're back at the Federation camp and Cisco is now going over this plan with with everyone else. And they're all really disturbed by this situation because the, the idea here is that they're just going to trap the Gem Hadar and then they're supposed to butcher them. And that is something they really don't want to do. But there's Garrick here, right? And Garrick reminds them that, hey, this is a war. Uh, the idea is to kill the baddies. But then O'Brien reminds Garrick that even in war, there are rules. But, you know, that's a human value. Garrick says, humans have rules in war. And frankly, it makes them less likely to win. And from here, the conversation opens up with opposing viewpoints. The Jem'Hadar would not hesitate to do this to them, uh, opposing viewpoint, but hey, we're not Jem'Hadar. But Cisco just puts an end to this conversation. This is not a vote. Garrick is right. This is a war and it's us or them. So we're doing this. And it's going to actually turn out that Cisco doesn't want to do this either. He's got a plan, but that's for the next scene. And I, I think it is well worth pausing here to talk about the ethics of this situation. I mean, this is what, you know, Trek is for. It's it's asking us to put ourselves in this situation and think about what we would do. So here's the question, Valerie, right? Is using this intelligence, this information, using that to kill all the Jem'Hadar soldiers, is that the right thing to do in this situation? And if it's not, what are the alternatives? Easy question. Well, what a question, Glenn. You just, you always <laughs> give me the easy questions. You know, the, the first way I want to dodge your question um, is by... <laughs> Uh, commenting again just on on Cisco, you know, on how special and and different Cisco is than the other 
Trek captains, Trek commanders that we've had up until this point. And I think the contrast here is always Picard, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and I, and even in this scene in the cave, I feel like Picard is in the room somehow. <laughs> um, and it it was really reminding me of um, this season one Deep Space Nine episode that I just watched called Q-less. I feel like in season one, they're still being like, ooh, watch us. We do the TNG things. Um, and so they have Q on. Um, but Q starts like a boxing match with Cisco and Cisco punches him. And Q's like, Picard would never have hit me. And, he, and Cisco <laughs> just goes, I'm not Picard. And, and there's a, they put that, you know, they're showing it to us in so many other ways, but Cisco is not Picard. And boy, is that evident in this scene here, right? You don't get a choice. We're doing this. Right. Picard simply would not do this. He would sooner die and sooner let everyone else die than to to do this, right? This is the the moral high ground that uh, the moral hill, maybe that he would choose to to die on for for good or ill. You pointed out that in Deep Space Nine, we don't always know what the human or Federation principles are, and we're not always adhering to them super closely. And Cisco embodies that <laughs> all in himself, right? In this moment, and in so many others, that complexity is is within him. So yeah, I I I don't know. I I think to your main question about what are the ethics here and what do we do and how do we think about it? I am so fortunate and privileged to have never been in a situation like this and to never have to have thought about this. And this was on my mind, this whole episode, not only with what's happening here in the A plot, but with the B plot too, and what Kira is going through, just, I haven't had to face this kind of choice and I don't want to think about it, (laughs) which is, extremely lucky for me because that's not true of a lot of people in our world this is a particularly tricky situation because there are variables here that that just we can't possibly encounter in our world i mean the catcher cell white being that that variable because really what's what's happening here is the idea that the Jem'Hadar are going to turn into animals. That's the language that's used and kill everyone without any kind of restraint. And so that really contextualizes the the, the choice here where something bad is going to happen to the Jem'Hadar, whether or not our Starfleet heroes use this intelligence here or not. But there also may be some actual other things they could do. And we are going to see that Cisco is going to do them. I, I think that this whole scene where we get this debate and we get this question, I think this is really great because it poses this question for us to think about and, and everyone in the audience to think about as this moral question, as this ethical question. I actually don't think that Cisco would not have told his people what his actual plan is here in this moment, that this is not actually how this would have played out. But as a little morality play, as introducing this ethical problem, I think it's absolutely amazing. And so I'm so I'm not complaining about it uh, one bit. But yeah, I just don't know what I would do in this situation. But I think that probably the person I feel that I empathize with the most in this scene is O'Brien, who is finding this business fairly ugly. Yeah, I think O'Brien is kind of the voice of Picard here, right? You know, standing in for this this TNG voice. You can't beam Picard up and down, uh, you know, that many times without a little bit of it rubbing off on you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he did. He served under him for so long, too, right? Um, and O'Brien is this interesting character in in the way he is, 
he's been influenced by um, his postings and his his commanding officers. I mean, if the question is, what would I do? Uh, the answer is still, well, I don't know, because I've never been in this situation. And it's all well and good to think about what you would do. But it's what well, I think what you actually do might be different. <laughs> but I think I would just have I would probably die. <laughs> that would probably be what I would do. Um, I don't think I have enough of this experience in me to um, to enact these things or to know how to think about them. So I would probably just be the Picard here. <laughs> well, I think Cisco's actual plan is a pretty good plan. It it, it does not work in in the, in this instance. I, but I think the alternative that he wants to try to do here is is really the right course of action. So yeah, let's uh, let's just go see what that is. This will wrap up the the a plot here with this final confrontation. So the third leads the Jem'Hadar to the Federation camp, but. It is a trap, but our heroes don't actually open fire because instead Cisco shouts for the Jem'Hadar to halt. And then he actually tries to negotiate with the third, with the Ramada clan. And he wants them to surrender so that Bashir can sedate them, which will stave off the effects of withdrawal from Ketracel White. And then he can get everyone off the planet. And he is explicit here in telling the third that Keevan has betrayed them. And so Cisco has this solution where he can keep his people alive and he can keep the third's people alive, the Jem'Hadar alive as well. But it turns out that the third has already suspected this and he followed the orders anyway. And he just, he just declines Cisco's offer. Now this is baffling. And Cisco says that Keevan really does not deserve this type of loyalty. But the third explains that the Vorta don't have to earn the loyalty of the Jem'Hadar. They have it unconditionally from the moment each Jem'Hadar is conceived. It is the order of things. Jem'Hadar lives don't belong to them. They belong to the founders and their officers, the Vorta. And so that's that's it. The Jem'Hadar attack, and they are slaughtered. And out of the smoke of the battlefield comes Kievan with the communicator. And that's it. O'Brien is going to get them out of here now. And we end with a shot of Keevan looking very smug and Cisco looking, I think, very disgusted. Uh, we do still have an entire B-plot to talk about, but I do actually want to talk about this ending of, of the whole episode here first. This was actually not the ending as it was written in the script, but because of the, uh, the 128 degrees temperature that you brought up earlier, Valerie, they couldn't shoot the ending that they wanted. But there was supposed to be a scene here in which the Jem'Hadar and the, the one Federation casualty of this, uh, of this battle were buried. And we do get a line here where Cisco orders a burial detail to get to work. We just don't actually see that. I would have liked that ending better. I think while this ending here, this works fine. It even packs a, a pretty serious emotional punch. I think I, I would have liked to end this episode with the focus actually on these Jem'Hadar soldiers who had to die for just utterly stupid reasons, rather than with the focus on Keevan. But what do you think about that? It's definitely no surprise that both you and I would prefer that Trek give us um, a burial scene and a funeral scene, right? This is something we talked about about a lot when we were covering Discovery um, and how how important it is to um, honor those losses and those people and those lives and to sit with it. So I certainly would always appreciate having a scene like that in the episode. I'm pausing because it it's interesting to me that you said rather than it ending with Keevan, 
or like highlighting Kievan. And that's just, I guess that is technically what happens. Like literally, that's kind of how it ends. But it's just not how it felt like it ended to me. You know, it didn't feel like he was getting the most attention or that we were really even necessarily meant to draw our focus to him because I was still caught up in the scene that just happened. Like I, I, I'm still in, in the shock and the sadness um, and the confusion of, of the, I guess, battle scene, if you want, if you can call it that. Um, and I'm barely even paying attention to the fact that Kevin is here now. Um, so I, I'm still lingering, lingering in the other. It's almost like it didn't, I, I, he just didn't affect me. I edited him out a little bit. Yeah, and to be fair, the the, the last shot, it really is actually on Cisco. So it, it does, in that sense, really end with his disgust. And I just would have liked, I guess, a minute to, to sit with that and just to remind us uh, that this is really supposed to be the story of these soldiers. But, you know, another question that's raised here is... Why? Why does Ramada Khan make this decision? I mean, I guess, you know, he says that this is their conditioning. They're not going to betray the Vorta, even even when he is betraying them, even when he is being the most duplicitous, you know, you can you can possibly be, that he's not going to do that. But I just, it's hard for me to, to really put my mind, uh, to put myself in making that decision. I cannot conceive of, 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 I can't conceive of myself being in command of these like five or six other soldiers and choosing to let them die when there is a, a way to keep them alive here. This is what I was pointing to earlier of just, you know, the we're confronted with the unknowability of the Jem'Hadar's lived experience <laughs> um, and culture and cultural conditioning and principles and purpose and values, right? Like you asked me to talk about what I would do in the cave and the ethics of that situation. And I can only speak from my values, which haven't really even been tested. You know, um, the second I said what I would do, I started questioning it, whether or not it was true, and whether or not it was right, right? Um, kind of as this episode encourages. And I agree with you, I have that, that response of why? Why? Why would you do this? You've been offered. Um, you've been offered freedom. You've been offered independence. Um, why would you turn that down? And it's just we don't get to know, and we don't get to assume to know. I think that's what Cisco is showing us, right? Like we don't get to know. We don't get to assume to know. We're not going to try to, um, you know. A, despite all other information and situational context impose what we know, we're just going to offer it and try and then do what we have to do, depending on what happens. I think this is a great point, Valerie, really just to emphasize the cultural difference here, right? That, you know, these are aliens, they have different values, they have different concerns and priorities than, than the Federation culture does. And this is a lesson, of course, that we as humans on a planet with many, 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 many different cultures need. And one of the things that that Star Trek and science fiction more broadly does uh, that is so important is to show us that it is possible for people to have different values than we have and to still be people, right? And for us to try to empathize, to try to see what it would be like to have those values ourselves and to just, just to imagine that, to stretch our our worldviews and to, to get into the, the, the minds and the experiences of other people. This is just a particularly heartbreaking way 
to do that. And I guess this can lead us into the the B plot where we're going to have to be thinking again about people in an incredibly tough situation and the choices that they're making and the morality and the ethics of the choices they're making and what choices we would make in that situation. And so here in the B plot, we are back on the station. We're back on Deep Space Nine. We're with Kira. Kira wakes up at five. She grimaces at herself in the mirror. She takes the turbo lift. It's packed full of Cardassians and Jem'Hadar. And then she gets a cup of coffee handed to her from a Cardassian as she takes up her position in ops. And we should just say here too, to orient people that the Dominion and, and especially Cardassians had occupied the station at the end of season five and that you know, some of our characters are, are still there. Uh, Jake Sisko is one of them. This is actually something he did on purpose. He stayed behind to work as a war reporter. Porter, uh, and that is what he's doing now, though Wayun is not actually letting his articles be transmitted. And in fact, in this scene here, as the, the story here continues, in this scene, Jake is interviewing Kira and Odo about a rumor that the Dominion is uh, about to send several hundred Vorta down to Bajor as facilitators. And Kira confirms that the rumor is true, but she explains that these 400 Vorta are are going to offer like technical assistance for things like medical facilities, things that Bajor needs, things that Bajor had been getting from the Federation. But it turns out that there is a prominent Vedic who sees this move as really the first step towards Dominion occupation of Bajor. And so she's organizing a protest on the station tomorrow. But this is actually the first that Odo and Kira are hearing about it. And they think this is a terrible idea and they are going to stop this protest. And then when Jake asks if that means that the right to protest is being abolished on the station, Kira just ends the interview and this B-plot, this is going to be about Kira recognizing that she, in fact, does not recognize herself anymore, that the, the Kira who quietly takes a cup of coffee from a Cardassian is not the Kira we meet in season one of this show, which you're going to be primed to talk about, Valerie. But we're going to have plenty to say about that when we get the rest of the B-plot. So I think what I'd like to do here, actually, is just pause and think about Jake Sisko, war reporter. I love this idea for him. And in, in fact, if there's any disappointment that I have about Jake as a character, it is that after this arc, he never quite has anything interesting to do again, or at least anything as interesting to do again. And, you know, I don't talk about this much, but like I think almost all Trek fans, I have written some Trek fan fiction. And uh, mine was about a 30-something Jake Sisko. Uh, report, him as a reporter was really at the heart of the Trek fan fiction that I have I have written. But I wondered what you think of this role for Jake, Valerie. This is how I hear about this? Yeah, I've been, I've been hiding this from you. <laughs> Can I read it? What's going, like, I want, I'm, we're, you're gonna, we're gonna talk about this. Okay. <laughs> Um, I love Jake here. I, and again, you know, like I, I was transported from season one to season six. Um, and, and so I am getting this like really stark contrast between these characters and, you know, have this, what is Jake 10 or 11 when the show starts? Um, so he's like 16 here, maybe 17. Oh my God. Like, I think not only is it so cool to see Jake coming into his own and into his adulthood here. I just think his voice is so important. 
I agree. And I think also that, you know, this is the perfect age. I, I think he probably is technically supposed to be 18 at this point because, you know, then like otherwise, otherwise uh, Ben Sisko has just like recklessly abandoned his child. Though to be clear and to be fair, uh, Jake hides. And in fact, there's a great scene when we all realize that Jake is still on this station. We find that out with Cisco himself, you know, Captain Cisco, Ben, his dad. And um, I have not watched that scene actually since becoming a father myself. And frankly, I'm afraid to. But I think that he's at the perfect age to do this, right? This is the age where you're supposed to really just be hostile to all authority. And for him to stay on the station and be essentially the conscience for Kira and also Odo a little bit, but especially for Kira here is just perfect for him, right? Is this, this teenager who's just become an adult, who's just sort of like core reaction is to question everything, to be cynical, to be so cynical and also think he knows everything is exactly what Kira needs to, you know, get her own groove back. Yeah. I mean, having the the now grown son of the emissary be the one asking you these questions is certainly a complicated dynamic. Um, And one of the many ways that Deep Space Nine keeps surprising us with um, kind of the, I guess, intertwined fate of all of the characters on this show Um, and and the plans for them and how they intersect um, and react against each other and how beautiful... uh, a bond that is and all the many surprises in there. So seeing Jake in this role is really cool in that way. I just, and man, I, I love to question stuff. That's uh, I made a personality out of that. Didn't, didn't stop that in adolescence, but I, I could have only hoped to have had the conscience of Jake Cisco when I was 18. Like those questions need to be asked, not only of Kira for her own character development, but they just need to be asked. <laughs> And pointed out and brought into the the dialogue for us to think about, for the characters to think about. Right. And this is supposed to be the role of the press, right? As as the fourth estate is to question authority, you know, on our behalf, right? To make them answerable to us, to always, you know, assume, <laughs> you know, ill intent or incompetence, right? To ask cynical questions, to look under rocks and see what's there and let us know, because this is how we can keep officials accountable and responsible. That's certainly, uh, you know, at the time that this episode aired in 1997, that is definitely what I would have said you know, journalism is for and what reporters do. Uh, sadly, it does seem like the internet has just destroyed that, destroyed any possibility that that's actually what it could be. And uh, this episode made me miss that. I don't think Jake is being cynical here. Um or even really like looking under rocks. Like I agree with you that that is um, often often the role of, of the press and that it's really valuable. But I, I think Jake is just stating the obvious uh, things that are wide out in the open and and not cynically and not cynical, but pretty reasonable or even elementary kinds of questions in response to to Kira's behavior. Um, it's just that Kira has has forgotten to ask those questions. Yeah, I'm not saying that Jake's having to work real hard for it here. There's definitely no investigating uh, going on. But there's just the fact that he is, you know, asking questions, speaking truth to power, standing up to the authority figure, and making them think about things and be re- answerable for things they don't want to be answerable for. Though, of course, also not really. They just end the interview and uh, and that's it, because uh, this actually is, in fact, a dictatorship here on the station right now. And also, no one except Wei Yun is reading 
is reading Jake's articles, though that's an interesting relationship right there. It's essentially letters to to Wayun, but that is also another commitment by Jake that I really love, that he has this sense that it is important to write these articles and to do this job, even if he's not actually doing it, even if what he's writing, what he's trying to tell people isn't actually getting to anyone. It is still important to do this. I really love this arc for him. And this is a moment when I really come to admire Jake, who becomes one of my favorite characters in Star Trek, which we don't talk about very much because we don't see this Jake very much, which is uh, why I've kept this fan fiction from you as well. I was going to say, well, I'm really learning a whole lot of things here so many years in. <laughs> and sadly, uh, that is not available for anyone's reading. Uh, uh, I won't say pleasure, but it's not available because I did it entirely uh, by hand in a notebook that I have uh, I have since lost before typing it up. Though, I don't know, maybe I'll try to revisit it. It would be, I had a good time doing it. That sounds like something Garrick would say. That's all. That's, that's, and that's, that's all I'm going to say on the matter. Yeah. All right. Well, Kira goes and meets with Vedic Yasim to try to talk her out of this protest. But Yasim, I think, is perhaps seeing things more clearly than Kira. Kira keeps explaining that this isn't the same as the Cardassian occupation. It's just civilian technical experts coming down to help. But Yasim does not see it that way. The station is occupied by Cardassians. Bajoran civil liberties have been curtailed, and now Dominion agents are coming to the planet. The situation is not different. It's Kira who is different now. She's become an apologist. She is a defender of evil. That's the phrase that Yasim uses here. And the Vedic asks Kira what it will take to get Kira to fight the Dominion rather than collaborate with them. But Kira is just exasperated by this whole thing, right? The Vedic just doesn't understand. And while I, I get that we are supposed to sympathize with the Vedic here, and we're supposed to be rooting for Kira to you know, wake up and get her groove back. I think it's worth trying to look at this objectively, right? Without the emotional attachments that we have to the characters and the institutions in this show. Because really the question that I have here, I guess, is from the perspective of Bajor, what exactly makes the Dominion the baddies? Like what makes becoming a part of the Dominion worse than becoming part of the Federation? Autonomy? Villainy? Imperialism, <laughs> right? But is, lots of things. Well, but is it really? This is. I want to play devil's advocate here, and and really take up the thing that we've been saying about Deep Space Nine this whole episode about how this is the show where it's not maybe clear that the Federation principles we see in TNG are the Federation principles versus Picard's principles, and. Just think about like this is Bajor that's that's only recently become independent from the Cardassian Empire, which was a brutal occupation. And something that they need is material support, right? They need help getting their material civilization, food, healthcare, uh, sanitation, and so on. They need help getting all of that back in order. The Federation is going to help them, but the Federation is also more or less requesting that they become a part of the Federation. And as such, in order to do that, are going to have to adopt some Federation cultural practices, some Federation political values that may not actually be in line with Bajoran culture. 
But this will let them be a part of a much larger state that will provide them with protection and security from, say, the Cardassians coming back or the Romulans showing up or somebody else like that. They'll get this material support. And yeah, the Federation is some kind of, probably not democracy, but is some kind of republic in which multiple voices participate in making decisions in some way. We really don't know very much about Federation government. But we can contrast that with what the Dominion is, right? We know that, I mean, definitely it sucks to be a Jem'Hadar. That's like the whole point of this episode. But as far as we can really tell, the Dominion itself just wants order. They're not actually micromanaging the planets that they control. They are seeming to let them have autonomy. What they're really governing is the space between the planets. There certainly are going to be technologies that they're not going to allow some of the planets to have things that might become weapons to use against them. Travel probably is curtailed in some sense, but it also does seem like part of their order is actually to maintain uh, just a sort of a sort of level of material culture, material civilization on these planets, and then also to keep the peace. That's really kind of the fundamental point of the Dominion. So is that going to be any different for them, really, than being in the Federation? I mean, the question here is at what cost? Uh, I I feel I come, I'm coming down very strong on, yeah, it does seem different. I see the similarities that you're drawing, and I think it's worthwhile to critique the Federation and to critique Federation tactics and interests in the way that the Federation also um, operates as imperialism in in other ways. And also, I think the key here is like choice and life and death, which feel like pretty big separators for me, um, pretty big spacers for me. We we know in Deep Space Nine that Bajor can refuse to be part of the Federation. Um, and while the Federation has this goal in mind, um, you know, ultimately Bajor can reject it and go on being independent. And if they reject it, they won't all be killed. <laughs> um, it's worthwhile to note that in some ways the Federation is going to ask for some control um, over Bajor and in order to offer help. They certainly have control of the station, right? Um, and from the beginning of Deep Space Nine, and this is one of the big issues in season one, too, is that Kira getting accused of collaborating with the Federation. And also, it's different than the kind of control that the Dominion wants, because as we can see with the order of things, if you don't play the part you're, you've been assigned, you will just be murdered. And the Federation isn't going to do that. So I agree completely. I did want to play devil's advocate there because I do think that on some some macro levels, the Dominion and the Federation have a lot of similarities. And this is actually where I think doing this episode that I proposed earlier, which would probably become many episodes, but I think that something like that would be a lot of fun to really ask these types of questions and, and have more time to deal with them, uh, you know, really like in depth. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right that there are several things that we see where the Dominion are very definitely worse than the Federation. For one, in this very episode, we see that the Dominion does not care about freedom of the press. And presumably that is one of the civil liberties that the Vedic is is thinking of here, right? And the Federation does, I think, explicitly basically have like our American Bill of Rights, right? So the freedom of the press is going to be one of them here, right? That you've got the freedom to 
criticize the government if you want to do that. That's we I think we know, although we never actually really see that because we don't see anything ever happening really on a Dominion occupied planet, you know, back in the Gamma Quadrant. I think we can safely assume that is not something they're allowed to do. We also know about the Dominion. Of course, you and I know this because we have already done the episode on on faith, treachery and the Great River. But you know, we've got this really horrifying story about how the founders create the Vorta by genetically manipulating them, which is also what they do for with the Gem Hadar that just kind of created whole cloth. And I think it's safe to assume that they will do that to other species as well if it suits them, if they think that that's something that they need to do, right? So their, so their agenda is control for their own sake, right? That's the agenda of the founders. The Federation seems to be, anyway, a pretty classic sort of liberal society in which the idea is to allow, is to create uh, a society that permits for the greatest flourishing of individuals and to protect those rights from both from within and, and without, is my sense of things. I would agree with that. And it would be very interesting to see what it looks like on a Dominion-controlled planet in the Gamma Quadrant. Why don't we have that? We should have that. I know. Really, number one on my list here, though, is a Klingon-controlled planet that is not inhabited by Klingons. But uh, we'll save that for this imaginary episode that I'm proposing and that we are likely to never actually do because uh, we should get the next scene. We are actually getting close to the uh, end of this episode here. So the next day, Kira and Odo show up at the promenade to stop the protest, but it doesn't actually look like there's going to be one. There doesn't seem to be anyone there. But there is someone here. Vedic Yasim is there. She's on the upper level of the promenade. And she says, evil must be opposed. And then she hangs herself. She she jumps down from the upper level and she hangs herself. And this is her protest at the Dominion occupation of, of the station and the sending of these technical advisors down to the planet. And this was this was a really tough scene to watch. I, I, I want to just carry on to the end of Kira's arc here. In, in fact, because I just don't know that I could handle pausing at this point. But we do get a, a short scene of, of Kira's day again. It's it's actually the same as before, except that now she really, really looks around at Ops. And she truly sees that it is full of her enemies and that she lets them bring her coffee. And she just gets up and leaves we check in with her a few hours later when Odo finds her on the promenade. She can't believe that just yesterday she had been ready to use force to suppress a protest against the Dominion. And she says that when she was in the resistance, she despised people like her. She is a collaborator. But Odo disagrees. He says that she's doing exactly what Cisco told her to do, which is to keep Bajor safe by remaining neutral. But Kira doesn't doesn't care. She's going to start fighting back here. And I have to say, what a B-plot, right? I mean, this, this is a B-plot that rivals many episodes A-plot. And really, just like what an episode, right? This is this episode's extremely serious. It's all it's very grave, I think, really. And honestly, at this point, I feel like I've not even been breathing for a while. I kind of just want to go to the Suite and play Captain Proton or maybe baseball or, or something at this point because just heavy. Yeah, I didn't even really realize it till you said it, but I had kind of sat back from the microphone and was just like staring down and I hadn't blinked or really breathed in a little bit because um, I almost didn't even want you to retell the story on air because of its weight. There is a lot 
to talk about here. And I'm, I just don't think I am the, the person equipped to talk about it, especially as a person with, with no lived experience, really, of these variables. But I can say that um, as an audience member, as somebody following these characters in this story, and as someone who so looks up to Kira, so, so looks up to Kira, and is so grateful for, um, for her spirit and her fire and her principles and what she stands for, it is nice to see her come back into that here. It was sad to watch the version of Kira that we had in the rest of the episode. She was sad too. She just didn't know it. <laughs> and her awakening is a is a beautiful thing to watch in a strange and heartbreaking and heavy way. And I think what they did with with again with the press is so important. I think it's such an important detail that Kira and Odo don't know when the protest will be, but Jake does. Um, to be thinking about, you know, what what is going on and what position does Kira occupy that somebody, you know, a Bajoran Vedic leading a protest against an occupying force doesn't want to tell her <laughs> uh, basic information about the protest, right? Because she's an, an agent of kind of the oppression. You know, and that just really sat with me, that small fact, right? The information she didn't have. But I do think they also do something really wonderful here with Odo, where Odo's first, second, third response is, no, you're not. Don't worry. You're fine. You're not a collaborator. It's okay. What we're doing is okay. And it doesn't really take that long, you know, for Odo to just listen and go, okay, let's do it. <laughs> let's fight back. Odo gives us these talking points of, of neutrality and of not speaking truth to power um, and all the reasons that exist um, to be afraid of doing so or to be confused about doing so. And and then he just listens to Kira and says, you know, like, let's do it. And that felt really cool. <laughs> that felt really cool to see. At first, I had a, a pretty negative reaction to to Odo, to what he's saying here in this moment, because really it, it felt to me like what we were seeing was Odo's own desires for order and stability coming out here, which is something that we know very much about him is why he is, you know, the sheriff on this on this space station is because he does love order. He does also love justice. But I think often what he means by justice is the order of things, maintaining the order of things. And so at first I thought that's he was really just trying to talk her into not rocking the boat because that just is something that deeply bothers him. But I think that you're right, Valerie, that he is trying to comfort her. He is listening. And certainly, yes, at the end, he is ready to follow her lead, whatever that is going to be. You know, he's also got a bit of a crush on her. So in fact, that's putting it mildly. And so I wonder how much that plays in in his choice there. I think it's super important that this is Kira's story and Kira's scene. But I do wonder what is really going on inside of Odo's mind in this moment as well. I don't know if this is what love is. <laughs> yeah. You know, I I never yeah. thought I would be. It's 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 so hard for reasons that maybe I should investigate for me to fully get behind and understand the Kira Odo relationship. But uh, I don't know. It's pretty beautiful. Yeah, it it is, and uh, you know, I'm glad that we've. Uh, really kind of ripped the band-aid off of doing these late stage Deep Space Nine episodes because we can get more of that as we as we go. And, and in particular season seven, which I I had just been avoiding because it's so serialized and and 
wasn't really sure how well it would work to jump in and out of those episodes randomly like we do. But uh, because we've had the commission and have tried that out with one, I actually feel pretty good about that. And I'm, I'm excited to, to do more of that. Well, I think that is uh, is looking ahead. And this, of course, is normally the point in the episode where we would uh, make a cocktail about the episode, maybe make some jokes about it. But that just does not feel appropriate to either of us to do for this episode in which in which people die so tragically and and maybe futilely right because because of because of the horror of this war so we're going to honor those characters by uh, by not ending on a on a joking note like that so that is going to do it for this episode i'm glenn mcdormand and i'm valerie hoagland thank you again uh to our patreon supporter and commissioner who made this episode possible who created the space for us to talk about this yeah, this was uh, an emotional, wasn't even really a roller coaster because I think it just went straight down the whole time, but it was an emotional journey here, this episode for me, but also one that posed a lot of important and difficult ethical questions for us to think about. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to to do that. This is, you know, what you and I, this is what this is what we, this is what Valerie and I go to Star Trek for is episodes like this. We enjoy the you know, the campy ones too, but this is really what this show is for. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity. And I will say to other listeners that if you're interested in commissioning an episode of your own, we would love to do that for you. So you can get in touch with us uh, really at any of our social media accounts, or you can email us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. If you've got a favorite episode you'd like to hear us talk about. There's a lot to hold in this episode. So if you want to hold some of it with us, come on over to our forum at claytemplemedia.com or our subreddit also under Clay Temple Media. Feel free as always to DM me at plants in Star Trek on Instagram. And until then, stay spacey.